Welcome to the Will Squared Recorded Sit-Down Sessions. Two wills, one message, live a good life. We discuss things fortnightly, listen if you want. Big willies. Will, I'm triggered. <laughs> I'm glad you are, Will, because today we are going to begin a series that I want to call The Moral War. The modern social dilemmas that are either holding millennials back or have eluded them into thinking they're moving forward. And today we're going to begin with probably the most popular one in the corporate and uh, political world, and that is diversity. <laughs> And I laugh at that because the great irony is it's anything but. But before we go straight into it, I want to elaborate on two ideas, two conflicting ideas. And the first, of course, is called meritocracy. And the second is called inclusiveness. Now, meritocracy is a rare thing. Inclusiveness is not. I'll just go into a bit of the history about it because this is the important thing. One is objectively better than the other. However, as we all know, objectivity does not influence emotions and uh, emotions are what influence our behavior. So the meritocracy is something that dates back and many debate this concept, but I would suggest it dates back to uh, Genghis Khan and the uh, Mongolian Empire. He was the first person to really control a really diverse group of people. And the meritocracy, the belief that someone's merit, their skills and their aptitudes as opposed to their lineage, and their heritage is more important. So a great example would be in our existing world, who do you give the job of... Um, CEO? CEO is a great example. So do you give the role of a CEO to the, the major shareholder's son, just because that's what the major shareholder is saying? Or, or do you, daughter. Or, or daughter, of course, of course. Diversity, yes. <laughs> or do you give it to the person who has the greatest skills, the best connections, the best resources, and the, the greatest talent? And the proponents for meritocracy suggest, well, obviously, it increases efficiency. You get the best people for the perfect role and everything works magically. Of course, this doesn't work in practice because there are other things underlying and the people against meritocracy, particularly in the banking world, suggest it is a bad idea because the key to finance is trust above all else, as opposed to you could have the greatest programmer building the greatest model for stockbroking. But if you don't trust the guy or girl, it's not useful. That relationship, that position is not useful unless you trust them. Hence, another idea called nepotism, essentially either favoritism through family ties or friendships dictates who gets key valuable positions. In my own experience, this happens traditionally in family-run businesses. It can happen in major businesses as well. The majority of the big businesses on the ASX 200, for instance, experience a lot of this. Again, they say it's a, it's a trust thing. They can't trust the job market. They can only trust their friends that they meet at their golf clubs, etc. That saying, all things being equal, you'll do business with a friend. All things being unequal, you'll still do business with a friend. Exactly, exactly right. And as you can imagine, for people that aren't friends with these powerful people. That can be quite belittling, irritating, and almost, they might suggest, uh, repressing <laughs> if, if they want to draw the line a bit further. But how do, we, how do we rationalize this? How do we find a happy medium? Because meritocracy is derived from our history with diverse, diverse regions. So again, with the Mongolians, they instituted it because they realized certain groups within the empire, be it the Muslims, some people from the Ukraine, the Teutonic Knights, even Chinese, were better than Mongolians at certain things. So they would let them do that. That was the idea of merit. 
The British Empire was a key example. Ruling a vast territory with dozens of different ethnic religious conditions, they let the best people do the most important jobs. So why do you think if meritocracy is so successful, yes. why are we trying to be inclusive and employ people who might not be as skilled as someone else just to fulfill a quota? Yeah, and I think that began around about probably during the 70s and 80s where society began to seriously rift. This is when uh, hippies and certain movements really began to pick up steam and pick up moral high ground. And it was also when the business, political and corporate world started to push back. Because during the 60s, that was a real time, most people would obviously disagree with this, but that was a real time of political and economic inclusivity. That was when the staunch Protestant uh, Western societies were starting to allow, you know, non-Protestant, non-white people into their ranks because they realized, yeah, JFK, you know, well, he might be Catholic, whatever, but he's still really good at what he does. Let's let him be president. Uh, Obviously, they don't pull the strings as directly as that, but that was a huge, huge thing back in the day. Ever since that period, though, we've uh, we've seen a period, as I mentioned before, where the the belief in social justice has been very strong, and that has also been merited. There were certainly some serious oppressions against women and certain minorities throughout the 70s, 80s, 90s, and into the early 2000s. But the reactionary force from, of course, the people who truly control the power, the CEOs, the politicians, etc., has been to continue an activity of exclusion in reaction to the aggressiveness of their, basically, people trying to undermine their power. In a way, we've become so inclusive that we're trying to fulfill quotas, which again becomes discriminatory because you may have someone that's in a meritocracy worth getting the role, but because you're like, oh, well, we have to have at least 50% minorities being employed, you would decide the employment and that in itself is discrimination. So yeah, it is 100%. That's a very common argument used by the right and conservatives. Quotas themselves are not an original idea. You know, they've been around, again, since sort of the British Empire when they demanded quotas for native populations to be employed in government representation. The Maori have been a part of a quota system in the New Zealand Parliament since its inception. But quotas in, as, as you've just mentioned there, Will, in how we understand them today, as in mandatory employment requirements up to 50%, have been more of a recent thing. Quotas were introduced because the proponents for inclusivity, diversity, believe that the meritocracy has failed. They believe if the meritocracy was real, still real, the CEOs and big businesses would employ everyone at equal levels because they have a belief that the representation of the population should match up to merit, not actual skills, actual aptitudes. They think if half the population's women, then obviously half of all the best positions should be women because there's no other reason. They think by virtue of statistics alone that women should be just as good as men because there's just as many women as men. I think the greatest failure of quotas is Norway. Norway is a great example of where quotas have gone insane. Well, Scandinavian countries in general, but Norway is particularly bad where there is a mandatory 50% women in everything. Now, you could imagine a situation where in the army, in the government, in business, in public service, in construction, in everything, 50% mandatory. And that's a funny thing because it doesn't mean 50% mandatory men, 50% mandatory women it means that is the baseline women can have 80 percent if they want but 50 percent minimum but men can't correct and it's led to this weird phenomenon where say you had 100 companies in norway 50 of them are operated by men and 50 of them are operated by women there are 50 male ceos but only about 12 female ceos how does that work 
there are only a handful of truly skilled women at that level. Or who even want to work Correct. at that level. And this relates to what I did last week, which was a leadership course revolving around inclusivity and how can cities be more inclusive. And we had a variety of speakers come in and speak to us about things, namely this woman who was CEO or I should say a CEO who happened to be a woman, <laughs> yeah. family run business, which is already kind of a bit nepotistic, a bit nepotistic because the ideas that she was pushing was that more women should be CEOs when that might not necessarily be true because it's like, well, family business, how hard would it have been for you to get that position? You know, it's yeah. quite hard being a CEO. You've got to work very hard, a lot, a lot, all the time. You're working literally all the time, 70 hours a week to be a, a, a good CEO. You know, you've got to take phone calls at 4am in the morning and be happy to speak to that other person on the end of the phone. <laughs> you know, otherwise, they're just going to go to someone else. Yeah, killer. And so, the, the statistics that were presented were very out of context. 60% of MBA graduates are women, but only 5% of them are CEOs. And so, the argument was, well, if there's 60% and only 5% CEOs, you know, come on, girls, go out there and take charge of the world and, and, and let's get more girl CEOs. If you think about it, if you actually delve into the into the facts, most people become CEO or an executive when they're when they hit their thirties, thirties, mid mid thirties. Coincidentally, well, not not a coincidence, it's the same age that women start thinking about having children, rightly so. Which means that they realise that they don't want to work seventy hours. I wouldn't even want to work seventy hours. <laughs> and they get a normal job that they can manage and have a family while the rest of the men or the other people who mm. don't want to have children are continuing on in their career. So that's when that the 5% of women that are CEOs are the ones that choose, you know what, I'm not going to have children. I'm just going to work on my career. And the 95% of men, again, they don't physically have to get pregnant and give birth. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so they can afford to spend 70 hours a week working. And also I think men also are more inclined to, go after power yes as opposed to women which is a fine it's not and here's the thing it's the people think that these differences are social constructs when it's actually ingrained in our biology mm. it's interesting you mention that because there are huge influences at, at work here i mean that that five percent statistic fluctuates a lot that's in reference to asx 200 ceos there are only about uh, 19 women out of the 200 ceos there and in fact there are more ceos named john than there are women ceos and they love spinning that rhetoric they love telling us all about that but i mean there's yeah other things men want power you know yeah society media our entire lives men are influenced to believe that money and success are the most important things in life yeah and i mean their kind of expectations be the main breadwinner but yeah all those things and um you know men are more willing to make massive sacrifices in their lives for those girls Sac and it's only a small percentage of men i mean I, like i said yeah, i wouldn't want to work 70 that. hours a week that's horrible i i think what we should be saying the whole theme of inclusivity is to be inclusive of all the aspects of your life personal mm. relationships career that sort of thing as opposed to just saying come on girls come on guys more of you should be ceos it's like well what if that's not what i want to do <laughs> exactly. i might not want to work that much i, I might not want to do that and so the you know, argument was very kind of uh, shallow because it didn't look at those deeper like you said the the external reasons the uh the cultural milieu if you will of our entire life that dictates essentially what we do a lot of the time 
underlying influences mm. and people forget that some things are not social constructs like the patriarchy it's not a social construct dominance hierarchies have been around before humans have yeah they existed in in the wildlife of earth yeah <laughs> in in pack hunting in velociraptors like lobsters <laughs> yeah this isn't something unusual yeah. what we obviously have to understand though is some people certainly feel marginalized by the system tearing down the meritocracy and bringing in quotas is a good way to feel like you're changing it doesn't that destroy the incentive to work it certainly does yeah what you were saying i remember mm. if we're all equal we are all poor together yeah exactly because there's no incentive to work if everyone's got the same what's the incentive for me to be better than the other guy nothing none. so there's got to be some incentive to improve and i think that's why meritocracy is good not all inequality is bad right because no. that inequality promotes and motivates people to work uh, hard so i think we've just become a bit too complacent i think mm. and it's just funny because i i we were talking about these sort of issues these big issues about gender pay gap and um that was mentioned at the leadership thing? Well, the first the first day we did kind of these bonding exercises where we would sit on a table and get given cards and then put them That's on right. a yeah. spectrum of, you know, agree, do not agree, don't know, no consensus. And we were asked at the end, because there were controversial topics like abortion should Oof. be legalized or euthanasia should be legalized. Yeah. Anyway, we got asked at the end, how do we feel? <laughs> and I yelled out, triggered. And everyone <laughs> laughed. Which kind of shows the fact that most people don't take the whole triggered no. PC thing seriously anyway. So, I think deep down people know that there are inherent differences between men and women. And I don't think we should be thinking about it as men versus women. It should be, we acknowledge our differences. How can we complement each other's strengths and mitigate yes. each other's weaknesses? As opposed to having this polarizing mindset, mm. which is kind of driving us further apart as opposed to bringing us together. Yeah, and I think what you just said there was typified by Australia's most famous feminist, Jermaine Greer, throughout the 80s and her literature talking about the fact that men and women are different, inherently different, biologically different. And we have different strengths and different weaknesses that complement one another that makes the society stronger. Because that was the time when that was when we were thinking we need women to be like men. That is why we have this CEO of this leadership thing saying we need more women like men CEOs. We need quotas that make that happen. We need women to go around and behave like men. And she said, all right, if feminists hate men so much, uh, how do they feel about a world dominated by 100% men? It's not great. A lot of the quotas do that. I mean, I can speak from my personal experience even trying to enroll into the Defence Force. There is a 50% quota on women and men. So the number of women that apply limit the number of men that can apply. So, if only 4,000 women apply, only 4,000 men can get a job in the Defence Force. And then, of course, from the get-go, the physical requirements are different. If we're all equal and we're all doing the same job, then how come you have to do only half my push-up standards? Like, how come your beep test is shorter than mine? We're all going to get shot at equally. There's a bit of cherry-picking, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. And um, that's like the premise of the welfare system. All of these things are derived from this belief of equalizing things out. The meritocracy itself has been taken out of context again because of that reaction in the 80s. People see it as a disguise of nepotism. They say, oh, the businesses say it's meritocratic, but really what they mean is, if you're my friend, job. That's where the quote thing comes from. That's where the gender pay gap theory comes from, because you need to find quantitative evidence to justify the need for quotas <laughs> and and i think it's reached the point as you just mentioned before where people are starting to realize once again this is going too far this isn't starting to make sense anymore and being triggered is a joke 
<laughs> Honestly, I was people knew me as the triggered guy. People just come up to me like, "Are you triggered? Are you triggered?" Yeah, <laughs> because like it's it's it is a joke. Like it's honestly, <laughs> I think it was good that we talked about those issues because a lot of people form opinions about them and then don't mm. necessarily get the chance to talk about them because this they're viewed as so controversial. So yeah. you kind of bottle up these big opinions about abortion euthanasia the gender pay gap mm. and so people bottle that up and i feel like that almost in a way comes out resentfully of course but i don't get to express that publicly and i think we should more because to become more equal and to close the divide between men and women we we need to communicate more and mm. and tell each other what we're thinking and and work things out yes as opposed to having these dogmatic quotas and these demands on society. I agree. It's every sectarian divide in our society. I think a big conversation we need to start having is between millennials and baby boomers. We've got a group of people that, that literally think we're just a tech-obsessed, uh, hedonistic, depraved, um, some of which is slightly accurate, uh, lazy... But there gen- are legitimate reasons for that. Yeah. And if we go to the root of the problem, then we'll find that that's what caused it. And if we address that, then we'll be fine. Mm. So I think there's a lot of this shallow viewing of the statistics yes, and not enough deeper diving into the real meaning behind it. What we've basically discussed is the original system that made the Western, Western society so great, particularly the British Empire, which obviously translated to us in Australia, and that was meritocracy. And in Australia, the meritocracy was championed by the unions as the fair go. And that is, you know, it's a very simple concept. Everyone who is striving to be the best they can be are put in the best area they should be put, right? If you were destined to be a CEO and you prove yourself to be that person, you can go there. If you were destined to be a doctor and you've proven yourself through your years of study and efforts, then you go there. However, in recent times, there's been a push for greater power distribution and naturally, like it's basically the Thucydides trap, which is a Greek philosopher basically said, existing power gets challenged by an up-and-coming power as an inevitable fight. The existing power is the establishment. The up-and-coming power is the fifth estate, which is like bloggers, internet writers, social justice warriors, etc. They're fighting over society's distribution of wealth and power. The reaction from the establishment has been, all right, I'm only employing my friends, I'm only employing people I know, people I trust, because I can't employ the best people because they could sabotage me from the inside. Since then, it has been believed the meritocracy has failed as a result of that. The, The entire concept is now treated as a taboo, dirty word. And instead, what we should integrate is quotas. Mandatory numbers of minorities, mandatory numbers of groups that are considered marginalized, and that will balance everything out. Which we know is wrong because it actually comes full circle and becomes discriminatory, which is what it was trying to prevent in the first place. Precisely. It becomes more discriminatory and it just doesn't work. Like in Norway, that example, the, the, there are only a handful of women that control half the country's wealth and they call them the golden skirts. That's not a great place to be in. And that doesn't improve the welfare of women. That just means a number of women become extremely rich. No one else does. Which just is the same thing, where same a small thing. proportion of the population is rich and the rest are poor. It's just now that they're female. Exactly. But are they though? Their, real, their mental conditioning is actually of that of a male. The fears of Germaine Greer have become a reality because when people reach the halls of parliament, when they reach the chambers of commerce, what they find is they've had to become a brutal, aggressive and cunning sort of male-minded mm. person to get there. So then how do we, mere yes. mortals, <laughs> young millennials... Just plebs. 
just mere plebs. <laughs> just plebs, yeah. How do we fight against this? How do we prevent inclusivity from becoming discriminatory again, from going full circle? How do we promote the meritocracy more in mm. our generation? It's a, it's a difficult question because we have to restore people's faith in a system that the most outspoken people believe is corrupt and broken. Appealing to people's common sense is a good start. Australia is a nation that still believes in the fair go. And I think appealing to that sense of cultural identity about that is a great start. It also fundamentally ties in as well to our university discussion. People think that meritocracy has failed because they're not getting jobs. Because I've got a law degree, that means I'm the most deserving. That means I have the merit that justifies. It almost becomes entitlement. Exactly. And in reality, the the level of merit for things are constantly changing. If you want to be a lawyer today, then you need to have a half dozen clerkships under your belt, as well as that degree to be the most deserving, have the most merit to get that job. People shouldn't ask themselves, how can I get what I want through political means like quotas, like demands on businesses, like repercussions for people that don't oblige us. Through the use of the moral war. The moral war, because they seem to have seized the moral high ground by belittling the meritocracy. How do we change that? We just need to start having a discussion about success in general. The most successful people in this world don't ask themselves what is inclusive and what is meritocratic. They just go out and do it. They realize what they can control and what they can't control, and they just pursue what they can. People who focus on what they can't control, the present political party, the present economic climate, how many women are employed in your workplace, are not going to get anywhere. Having this realization will fix this problem pretty quickly. Yeah, I agree with that because it was a recurring thought over that week that we did this leadership thing because we were talking about such big issues mm. that we we have no effect on. In- yeah. Inequality, gender pay gap, like... Like us as mere kids. Exactly. Like we can do something about that. Precisely. We went to see companies that were implementing inclusivity in their organization. <laughs> I say that in uh, inverted commas, yeah. because yeah, it's... Yeah. We went there and you asked them, you know, what are you, what are you guys doing? What sort of projects are you doing that are being inclusive? And they, they kind of brush it off. Where we've got a strong focus on people. <laughs> yeah, but what are you actually doing? What have you actually done to be inclusive? And they can't answer that. So my whole thing was... Let's stop, t- stop talking about what should happen and focus on the how. Yes, we should be inclusive. There should be equality. But the question should be, how do we implement that? Mm. And my whole thing was streamline the system. Companies have such a large chain of command. Mm. And I feel sorry for the guy that was talking to us <laughs> because I could tell that he really wanted to change things, but he wasn't in a position to do so because he's probably got to speak to three guys above him and by the time it gets to any sort of person with decision-making power problem just gets so diluted down that it's irrelevant so streamline the system how do you do that well i was thinking about it you have a representative in each of the departments an innovation representative Mm. then have an overarching representative that speaks to each one of those department heads and then sits on the board as well so that they can have a direct yeah, direct Same. report straight to the board regarding innovation. It makes sense. Yeah. So that was my whole kind of thing was, yes, these are issues that are important, but we can't we can't address them as kids. So what no. are the things that we can change now? Clean your room, start small. Mm. So then make you can your make your bed so that the, you, can, you know, start small so that you can move on to address the bigger things. In terms of the corporate aspect, because I feel like that's probably 
that's where you get your first taste of the effects yes uh, in your first career um whether you get it as a result of quotas or whether you lose it as a result yeah, of quotas. whether you don't get the job because they're like oh sorry we've got uh, an asian yeah. Who, yeah even my own brother for Brilliant. instance in his line of employment um they're having a big push to get girls in it because it's 99 male representation his his mate lost a job for that reason um whether it was the right choice difficult to say but yeah how do we how do we control that within our own minds i think it's it's asking the question instead of why aren't there enough women mm. why there's so many men and look at the reason there and then yeah. understand why it's like, why aren't there any women down working in mine shafts? Why is it all men? <laughs> like, why do men want to work down in mine shafts? If you can answer that question, then you can answer most of the debates that people are having around why there aren't women CEOs or as many women CEOs. You can address most of the inequality questions around that. So the starting point for us is asking those questions, looking deeper, yes, understanding that we're not going to tackle or be able to solve the issue straight away. Nah, this is a, a generations-long oh, uh, fix. It, we just, it's chiseling away at the at the problem. And it's unfair to think that we will change it in a day. And I think that that's the problem with most social justice warriors is that they're acting as if just by speaking about it and yelling as much as they can, they're going to mm. change it quickly when that's not the case. Yeah, it's, it's something we've lost to our movements as well. I mean, the, like the civil rights movement by Martin Luther King, the suffragettes, they all understood this will take centuries. Let's start the ball rolling. People, again, our generation, addicted to instant gratification, want the same thing in social justice. They want it now. They want it immediately. We just need to change our mindset. Let's make little improvements in our life every day and just focus on what we can control. If you lose the job in the workplace, well, that sucks. Go to a workplace that doesn't implement quotas. Um, <laughs> it's a shit workplace anyway if they do that. Exactly. You shouldn't be there if they're doing that. Yeah, exactly. You need to ask yourself, what, what do you want in life? And if you do want a certain thing, does all this actually really affect that? And how do I work better with the opposite gender? Mm. Or, or, the, or the Muslim person or the yeah, fresh anything. immigrant, you know? And that's the idea of uh, cultural intelligence as well because, yes. I mean, all these sort of intelligences are coming out. But it has a, legit, <laughs> it has a legitimate basis because emotional intelligence talks about how you can interact with other people. But in most cases, you only interact with people that are similar to you. Yes. So, cultural intelligence comes in and says, how well can you interact with people that aren't similar to you? Mm. And I think that's, that's where it comes in. It's the ability to interact with people who are different to you and have different mindsets and recognizing your strengths and weaknesses working together to mitigate the weaknesses and complement the strengths mm. i think if we just do that then there won't be any need for quotas inclusiveness no. won't even be mentioned and we're on a way to a more legitimately inclusive and realistic world yeah exactly this one goes out to all the big willies